You know, twins born on the eve of a pandemic does sound like a quite fascinating short story. <laughs> like some setup from great literature. Of course, it wasn't fiction. That's me, your host, Katherine Goldstein, in the spring of 2020, talking about what I'm going to tell my then newborn twin boys, born February 12th, 2020, about the world they entered into and the pandemic that has defined it. I think a lot about what I'm going to tell them has a lot to do with how this ends or what happens next. And I feel like the story, we're only in the first few chapters, so it's very hard to think about what I'm going to tell them. But it is very refreshing to be around, like, generally very happy babies who are just happy to be here, you know? They're just happy to be alive. Um, and there's something, like, very beautiful about that simplicity. Over a year and a half later, the story of the pandemic is not over. How this ends and what happens next for all of us, well, that is still not clear. What is clear is that the impact on caregivers and mothers in particular has been cataclysmic. About one-third of all moms in the workforce have reduced their hours or left their jobs or plan to do so. That is roughly eight million mothers. But listen, this isn't just about jobs or long-term lost earnings or lost political power or cultural contributions. Every mother has been touched by the pandemic, and even if I don't know your exact story, I see you, and I hear you, and I know how hard this has been. Every mother has a story that ought to be heard and honored, and we've told many stories this year about moms and the impact of COVID. Now, in a two-part series, I want to share mine. Before we dive in, I want to be clear that even in my darkest personal moments, I am well aware that I have had many more resources than many other people during this time. And we're sharing this story because we think mothers in particular, you know, we need to process what has happened and what keeps happening. So many of the issues and themes that were on my mind in early 2020, unfortunately, still feel very relevant in fall 2021 because they haven't fucking been fixed yet. And I also have a more personal reason for wanting to share this. I have been having a hard time and Sometime around August 2021, as Delta was surging, right as schools were reopening and we were planning to gear up for another super busy time here at the Double Shift, I realized 
my oxygen mask was not on. I was anxious and depressed again, and I couldn't just keep carrying on like I was fine. And that what we are all still living through is no big deal, and that we are all just somehow fine. We are not fine. So along with co-host Angela Garbez and our senior producer, Rachel McCarthy, we decided to recalibrate our plans and share something right off the bat that feels like it speaks to this never-ending COVID turmoil and tries to help us collectively process a little bit of what we've all been through. One of America's repeated sins is our failure to account for past wrongs, to acknowledge and repair and make things right. We see this over and over and over in the history of this country. So it's our job at The Double Shift to both document what has happened to mothers, to refuse to sweep it under the rug, And along with all of you, our community, it is all of our jobs to get activated about how people have been treated so we can change things for moms and families and for kids, many of whom went a year or more without stepping foot in a classroom and lost so much more than we can measure in test scores. And we need to change things for mistreated and burnt out workers and undervalued caregivers. Our job is to refuse to let this moment pass without demanding a better future for everyone. This is The Double Shift. So in spring 2020, no one knew what was going to happen, but always a journalist, I decided to start documenting Recording voice memos on my iPhone in a postpartum quarantine haze whenever I could find the time. I'm pumping right now. Or when I was sitting outside the grocery store or holding a baby or two in my lap. There's no monotasking. It is only multitasking. Or in between trying to figure out anything, anything to do with my high-energy four-year-old Asher who had been in public pre-K. These voice memos became my own sort of audio diary. And after we hear some of them, I'll talk with co-host Angela Garbez, yes, Angela will be joining me, about what's changed and what hasn't, what we've learned and how we begin to think about something better. Okay, I'm taking a deep breath here. Here we go. Back to April 2020. I forget what the date is. April something. We've completed three weeks of Asher being out of school. And this was originally when the first school break was going to be over, when they thought maybe you could close schools for a few weeks and this would pass, but honestly, at this point, I'll be really excited if they go back to school next, in the fall. (sighs) I think the hardest thing, of course, is like, 
not seeing friends and, you know, like not being able to have friends over to hold the babies and doing things with other families has been hard. But honestly, the number one most challenging thing has been to not have Asher in school. That is the thing that I feel like has come the closest to, like, breaking me. Something that happened that Asher said the other day was, our twins are Jonah and Miles, and he declared that Miles was his best friend. And it made me really... It was really sweet, but it made me sad because he can't see his, like, real best friend, who is his age, who, like, lives down the street. And he's like so wants to be with other children and like declaring that this like little tiny newborn is his best friend who like doesn't talk or doesn't do anything it's just like that's basically like the best he's got um that just made me sad um but then I was also like wait what about Jonah it is the fourth. 13th, April 13th. I know the date because yesterday the twins turned two months old. Happy two month old birthday to them. I don't spend a lot of time on feeling guilty about mom stuff, but I feel like my parenting is like to say it's like reached new lows. Basically an understatement. Um, Highlights, lowlights include threatening to throw away one of Asher's toys if he did not participate in his pre-K Zoom meeting and, like, physically dragging him to do a Zoom class because I was like, this is, like, 20 minutes of education that I'm asking you to do, Asher. Um, Today, Asher threw his breakfast uneaten waffle into the sink just because he said he didn't like it. And then we had to, like, chase him and rip potato chips out of his hand that he wanted to eat instead. I have contemplated looking up to see if Amazon sells something where you can, like, keep that, like, an outside lock where you can keep your kid in the room. Because between quiet times and or timeouts, there's, like, no way to keep him in his room. I don't know if they sell that. It's probably, like, illegal to, like, have things that, like, lock kids in rooms. I've contemplated looking for that online. We're not doing any craft projects. No bread baking. No hands-on inspirational gardening. So I just want to, like, be real about the sort of performative, like, This is hard, but we're all happily homeschooling our kids. Like, my kid is, like, fucking feral. So much of this time reminds me of how people talk to and treat pregnant women. Because, basically, there's a lot we don't understand about the virus and the the rules and what you should and shouldn't be doing are constantly changing and there's sort of a nonstop assessment about risk that you have to make without a lot of data. And so, like, for example, 
You know, I see all these people talking about spending hours disinfecting their groceries. Like, I don't fucking have time to disinfect my groceries. I'm sitting in front of the grocery store, by the way. (laughs) This is how I can escape and have an uninterrupted thought. But then, it, you know, I think there's this sense of like, well, if you're not disinfecting your groceries, like, you are risking the lives of your entire family and all of humanity because you're so irresponsible. Just reminds me of how the shifting sands on, like, what we tell pregnant women it is and isn't okay to do. Like, who fucking knows? It is 5.45 in the morning on Saturday, uh, May 2nd. I'm also trying to speak quietly. Babies are asleep, but I am awake. Had a really tough week. Um, We have a highly social child who is not getting to socialize. And I feel like Asher really needs playmates and a lot of interaction. And he, like, tries to play with the baby sometimes. But usually it ends with them crying because he, like, tapped them too hard or whatever. Or, like, jumping around and scaring them accidentally. It's hard to give him what he needs. I mean, when you have a newborn, they're portable. So you can like put a newborn in a carrier and then like go do something with Asher to park. But then it's just like not practical to like take them in a double carrier places. I mean, I don't even, where are we even going? Anyway, these are like super mundane complaints. And I feel like right now the way to like get through all of this is to think about the things that you're grateful for, which I do. We are all healthy and we are not facing catastrophic financial circumstances as many people are, but I feel like every mother on the planet has a right to complain and we shouldn't feel bad about acknowledging how really, really difficult this is even when we recognize that there's always someone out there that has a worse situation. There can be many, many people out there with a worse situation, but I mean... If we can't complain about how hard this is, what can we complain about? It's May 16th. I have been thinking a lot about the mental load and the emotional labor of the pandemic stuff is like, has just really worn me out. I mean, I feel like mothers especially are in this position of taking on this in addition to the homeschooling, the childcare, the work stresses, the total societal disruption, I feel like we're also tasked 
a lot of times with taking on the mental labor of calculating risk and making sure everyone's safe. And I've spent a lot of hours thinking about risk and safety and how to keep everyone safe in the family, including my mother-in-law, who we see a lot, and what sort of sanitizing needs to happen, how to sort of mitigate all the different risks. And the sort of mental load of that just feels like a lot. And I always have hand sanitizer with me and yada, yada. And so I feel like right now as mothers, like we feel like it's our job to be sure everyone is safe. I've also been thinking a lot about how quickly our society has gone from we are all in this together. We've never faced anything like this, but certainly as we work together, we will get through this together. We really this is our to moment to think about everybody else. And it's not just about us or our families, about everybody. That's right, because we're all family. We're all in this together. We are. We're going to have more. And how quickly that has now morphed into the idea that everything's a personal choice. There really, in terms of the pandemic, despite the rhetoric, there truly are no personal choices. Like every choice impacts our community and our world. But it's the same rhetoric. This like, it's a personal choice. It's not about systems. It's not about public policy. It's not about coming together to collectively do something. This is the same rhetoric for climate change. Like, oh, well, you just need to get a more fuel efficient car or you should be using LED light bulbs or composting. Like, not we need systemic policies to address climate change. We need to have governing structures to regulate corporations and polluters and have global inner cooperation and all that. Like, oh, it's just like, why don't you buy LED light bulbs? Like, that's actually not going to be enough to fix climate change, nor is like the micro decisions about whether or not to go on a beach vacation. That's not going to fix this pandemic. And that's sort of the same way we've been treating mothers and the issues around childcare because we haven't had any subsidized childcare in this country for the most part. And so it's always about like childcare choices. And I think virtually every parent has agonized over childcare choices. It's a personal choice. It's what you can best work out for yourself. And that's why so many working parents spend like all these hours and thousands of dollars on camps because there's no systemic solution to what to do with kids in the summer. Basically, we just think if you choose to have a child, then you choose to go through all of these things, whereas actually comprehensive public policy solutions or and subsidizing high-quality childcare is really what we need. And it's not just about, like, whether you found a good nanny. So we have, like, a month where we're all in this together. And I feel like we're all in this together is parents are bearing the brunt of that, absolutely especially mothers. It's July 1st. I was awakened different times by all three children last night, and I feel like today I've been a zombie. And when I was awake, I was thinking about schools. I was thinking about school in the fall. So today was supposed to be the day that our governor announced, like, 
some of the plans for school in the fall and like what the guidance was going to be. But then he like released a statement saying basically like late last night that he wasn't going to announce it and no date for announcing it was set. I've just been feeling so depressed this week. And mainly it's because I feel so strongly that it didn't have to be like this. It did not have to be like this. And so I also realized that I had to shift my thinking and basically start to think about the idea that we live in a failed state, that the government cannot provide like basic services to us anymore unable to provide public education reliably, unable to provide a police force that is trusted and sort of like able to do its basic duty in terms of how the general population sees it. Obviously, there's many people who still love the police, but there's been a lot of erosion of trust there. We do not trust our leaders. We don't trust the federal government. We pay taxes to governments who cannot support and protect us for basic human functions. And, you know, as I've come to this realization, I realize, like, there's a lot of marginalized groups who felt like this for a long time. And so it's not new, but it is truly heightened. And the effects are going to be very, very long-lasting. And I just, I'm so fucking angry. I'm so angry that we live in a country and in a state and in a town where you can go eat inside in a restaurant and it is not safe for teachers to be teaching in our schools. I'm so angry that children come fucking last. There's no one less important in terms of our priorities and hierarchies in this society than children. And mothers are supposed to just pick up the pieces. Now it's the present. We're here in fall 2021, and I'm with co-host Angela Garbez. Hi, Angela. It's good to be back with you. Hi, Catherine. I'm happy to be here with you, too. So, Angela, I recorded all of what you and our listeners just heard early in the pandemic and before you joined the show as co-host, mm-hmm. the sort of double shift before times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I, I'm really curious, what's your reaction to hearing these audio diaries now in fall 2021? Man, you like took me back like way back into it. Um, I felt I had a really visceral reaction. Like there was uh, so much intensity and uncertainty in those early days of the pandemic. And of course you had that extra special layer of postpartum life. Um, But that feeling, you know, honestly it made me uncomfortable. 
It was a lot. Um, that feeling of that there's so much family. There's so much us to deal with and so little space. I got that claustrophobic sense right away. Hmm. Wow. So it was, uh, it, I felt it like viscerally and it made me a little bit uncomfortable. The other thing that really stood out to me, um, was what you said about I mean, it's a beautiful phrase, too. The shifting sands um, about directions around safety and how that still feels very much the case now, maybe even more so. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like the shifting sands is something we've continued to live th- with through the entire pandemic. And that doesn't feel like that's changed all that much. Yeah, I almost feel like we're like walking really quickly above like, what is it called? Like a sinkhole type thing? Quicksand. Was, yeah, quicksand. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. So if we're running, 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 but if we stop for one moment, we could just go like and disappear. Right. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, so last year, my kindergartner, Noli, was all virtual. And so it kind of like that had its own special challenges, but it also was like, okay, we're removing this risk factor, right? right. They won't be in contact with each other. So now my beautiful six-year-old is in in-person full day, first grade for the first time. And she's so excited. And it's like, I know this is what she needs. But, um, you know, I remember before school started trying to get my head around the Delta variant, which was not a thing we had to think about this time last year. And how, you know, we don't know that much about it. That's the other thing. We have to admit there's a lot that we don't know. Um, But it does seem pretty clear that it's way more contagious and it is affecting more children. Right. So, like, in the weeks leading up to school and the first few weeks of school, and if I'm being totally honest, still now, like, I'm anxious, you know? And the deepest fear that I had, which I don't often give voice to, was that I was like, oh, my God, are we going to look back and think that, like, we, like, canceled or we put online the wrong year of school? Like, right. Yeah. Could 2021 be that bad? I know it's been a few weeks, um, but here's the thing. Like, I know for a fact that children in her school, not necessarily in her classroom, have gotten COVID. Right. And, you know, I was sort of waiting for the school. Like, I knew this because a parent texted me, the parent of a child. And I was sort of waiting for the school to make an announcement, but they're not going to. Like, they don't make an announcement to the full school unless, like, they really have to. So... I'm just out here trusting the system, which, if you know me, (laughs) is not my strong suit. (laughs) Well, we have a lot of reasons to not feel like trusting the system for many reasons. (laughs) Like, I'm so I'm like trying to trust the system and contact tracing. But the truth is, like, to go back to the shifting stance, like, I feel like 80% of the time, I don't even know what I'm basing my decisions on um, when it comes to my unvaccinated children. Like, play dates outside, yes, of course. But they're also eating together indoors, unmasked, so everything feels contradictory, and I just feel, again, we're just on this constantly changing thing, and we have to become confident in our own decisions, because there is no clear directive that we're going to get. And it's so hard to be confident in your own decisions, because we're not, you know, we're all just amateur epidemiologists, like, (laughs) minoring in air filtration, (laughs) And I think this school year has thrown a lot of parents, like, right back into that, you know, a new round of anxiety and uncertainty. And, you know, as we're recording this, you know, I I am having some waves of hope 
that kids' vaccines will be a thing that help us turn a corner. But we've all been on such an intense emotional ride for so long on when we're going to turn a corner or what's yeah. going to make a difference or when when the pandemic is re- going to really come to an end. And it's just, it's hard to know how optimistic we should let ourselves be because we've been in this state of heightened anxiety for so long. And, you know, these sort of bursts of optimism followed by more setbacks over and over is so, so draining. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I find myself feeling like maybe optimism isn't worth it. I'll just wait, <laughs> right. you know? Just wait. Um, right. You know, on top of all this, I've been thinking about what roller coaster we've been on politically in the last 1.5 years. Oh, my God. It's... You... Okay, wait. <laughs> Do you remember Remember how Donald Trump was our president? Uh, this time <laughs> like, last year. Like, what the year. fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was thinking, was been listening to the voice memos, right? So the summer of 2020... When you were recording these, um, was very much defined by mass protest. Yes. Because of the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and widespread outrage about police violence. And you have a reference to that in one of your memos. Yes. And yeah, I noticed when you were talking about the public's relationship with the police that you used the phrase an erosion of trust. Yeah, that listening to that a year later, it really stood out to me. Um, that phrase. Yeah, because like erosion of trust implies that there was ever trust to begin with. Right. Yeah. And that word choice, sort of that unfiltered word choice, reveals some of my own naivete in that moment and how I was viewing it. Or, you know, the community that you come from, right? Because I think within like a lot of white people and not just white people, but a lot of people are raised to think police are good, right? And that's definitely things that I see that, you know, in my daughter's preschool, they're teaching that. But um, a lot of communities of color have never had any great reason to trust the police. Right. So it just feels like it's important to remember um, that even though so many people are suffering, people are not all experiencing the same thing. And that because it's America, that absolutely has everything to do with race. Right. And you, I mean, if you just take a look at how this pandemic has disproportionately affected people, when we're talking about COVID death rates or unemployment during the pandemic, food and housing insecurity, like very basic things, uh, Latinx, Black, and Indigenous communities have suffered and Mm. continue to suffer disproportionately. Like we are not all experiencing the same thing. And Asian American communities have been faced with increased racialized violence. This is all sort of part of the overall picture of the last, you know, year and a half, but obviously many, many things leading up to that. Yeah. And, you know, it can be true that people out there have it way... I mean, I actually hate being like, it's way worse, I'm using air quotes, because it's not like suffering isn't a competition. I know we've talked about this. Um, Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but I was thinking about your audio diary about the concept of complaining, right? And even when there are people out there who have it worse and you know this, it doesn't mean that people shouldn't be allowed to complain. And I was really struck by the question um, when you said, if we can't complain about, you know, like the day-to-day stuff that's going on on in our lives, like, what can we complain about? And it really made me think, you know, like, we need to be you know, in addition to voicing frustrations about our individual situations, we need to be calling out the systems that have Mm -hmm. led to these personal situations being so difficult. Um, We need to really look at the bigger picture beyond our own households, even if that's like what we're confined to most of the time. Right. Yeah. Um, I feel like we need to get angry 
And we need to come together to change these things, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. Absolutely. Amen. And I think, you know, part of why I wanted to do this series was to just process the past and Mm -hmm. what we've been through, but also revisit it and say, you know, looking back on this, it is not okay. And it's worth getting angry about, not just on the personal level, but how so many of these systems like lack of paid family leave, mm-hmm. uh, a for-profit healthcare system, mm-hmm. super high childcare and housing costs, like mm-hmm. low worker pay and protections, all of these things have not changed yeah. and have played into why the last one and a half years has been so hard on the individual level. And, you know, one or more of these issues has touched so many of us. Mm-hmm. And those huge systems have not changed. Yeah, absolutely. I was like sitting as you were listening and feeling really overwhelmed, <laughs> which is, I think, you know, <laughs> a place that we're all at. But that's why I think this is really important to continue this conversation, to think about we're processing the past. We have an eye to the future. So we are going to talk much more about anger and action in part two of this series, and how we can all think about what we can do to help change these systems for ourselves and everyone around us. Be sure you're subscribed. Here is a little preview. People are going to have to quit their jobs. People are going to have to pay someone to watch their kids. People are going to have to make terrible economic decisions because society has completely abandoned us. So stop criticizing mothers. Criticize a goddamn politician or anyone with power in this country, just over this. You don't want to miss this. Also, we are working on a show about reproductive justice and mothers. So I'm going to drop on you here my very favorite abortion stat, which is that 59% of women who get abortions already have at least one child. I mean, to me, this really drives home the point that people out there who are getting abortions are the people who know exactly what it takes and exactly what it costs to have a child. So if you had an abortion after you had a live birth, we would love to hear your story. Tell us what went into the decision, your experience with the procedure, and what your thoughts are about it now. Send us an email or a voice memo recorded on your phone to askthedoubleshift at gmail.com. That's askthedoubleshift at gmail.com. If what we do here means something to you, consider becoming a member of the show. It starts at $5 a month. And if you're able to pay by the year, that helps us even more. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. This is an independent show, and we cannot do this work without member support. And we are so grateful to our amazing community members who are able to donate. It means so much to us. This fall, Double Shift members are getting super fun monthly Zoom hangouts with a different theme each month with me, Angela, and each other. And y'all are a bunch of super cool badasses. I have loved getting to know you all. We've done several of these already. Yes, it is. Um, I always knew that, I, you know, I was like, double shift listeners and, and members, they're great. But actually being able to talk to everyone, um, it's been... It's been, like, life-affirming. Seriously. <laughs> it is, it's been such a highlight of the summer. So don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to get in on the fun. And if you're able to donate, 
at $10 or $25 a month, we'll donate a membership to a double shifter who loves the show but can't afford to be a member right now because we don't want to leave anyone out. Also, one more small favor. Tell someone you know about the show. Remind the person that told you about the show that we're back and that they don't want to miss what we're up to now. Share it with a friend who maybe has a new commute. Share it with your sister who just had her first baby. Or slip it into your unfiltered WhatsApp mom rant group. Just share it, please. Thanks. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our co-host is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. Our producer is Olivia Richardson. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Jada Hester. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Shreppel. Special thanks to NBC's Today in the Bay. We are funded in part by the generous support of you, our members. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift. Thank you.